Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be diving into episodes 361 through 363, which will cover manga chapters 466 through 467. And as you can see for the last few podcasts, the number of chapters being adapted is beginning to dwindle from three to just two chapters for every three episodes, which can be really felt in these episodes as there are a lot of filler time wasters inserted between these Shorter but awesome fights for Usopp, Zoro, Chopper, and Robin. But anyways, let's get on to the synopsis. Usopp has now got Perona right where he wants her as he uses his bag of tricks to finish her off. Zoro being the next must face down the legendary samurai from the Wano country. And finally, Chopper and Robin need to even the odds before they can start to take down Dr. Hogback. On to the differences. So, like I said, there is a lot of inserted scenes here to sort of extend the time. And the first one being at the conclusion of the Usopp versus Perona fight, it's interrupted by more of the Moria and Luffy and Orr's stuff. In addition, there's also some extra scenes of Robin and Chopper fighting the Zoro and Sanji zombies. Whereas in the manga, Usopp's fight is all one sequence. Also, in the manga, when we do return to Robin and Chopper, they've already been subdued by the zombies. So we don't actually get to see this fight play out, but it was added in the anime, obviously, to extend the time. Now, I do understand that there, some of these scenes are inserted so that they can place the cliffhangers at the end of each episode at the right moments. And yeah, I can kind of get on board with that, but it's just the stuff it really does mess with the pacing by this point and you really start to feel it drag some scenes on and on when you want to get to sort of the point especially if you've read the manga and you know how it's supposed to play out and you're just waiting for the actual moments to happen anyways one scene or change that made it into the anime that isn't necessarily a time waster but when perona passes out from usopp's golden pound in the manga she's actually foaming at the mouth which is like Oda's universal way of showing someone has passed out from being mentally overwhelmed. But in the anime, the foam is removed and she's just got her mouth wide open, which works fine. But I, I, you do feel like it adds a little bit more impact when you see Perona like foaming at the mouth and kind of drooling. And I get why they changed this. Maybe because it's it's a little extreme for younger audiences to see somebody like foaming at the mouth like that. But I feel like that imagery, I, I don't know, I, I, I liked that sort of imagery in the manga. But it's a really minor change, so it's not that big of a deal. And then finally, there's an extra filler scene after the Zoro Duma fight where the remaining general zombies try to restrain Oars, as well as another cutaway to Luffy versus Moria. Uh, in the manga, it actually just goes straight to the from Zoro's fight to the Chopper and Robin stuff versus Hogback. Again, showing, yeah, that just trying to space time and, and sort of put in some more fillers. Anyways, with that out of the way, let's get into the episodes themselves. So first off, let's talk about the title of episode 361, as it's a really interesting one when it comes to Japanese and how they translate it. And they actually do a pretty good job of making it work, even if it's a sort of a bit roundabout way of doing it. So the title as translated by Funimation slash Crunchyroll is Quote, Perona is terrified. Usopp, the untruthful, the same you. And in Japanese, the word for lie is uso, which is where Usopp's name is derived from since it's he's a liar and it's right there in his name. 
So this title in Japanese is really simple and and easy, and literally reads the you in uso is the you in uso. But I do like that they m- make it work sort of by using the word untruthful, so the you still applies. Um, <laughs> it's it's funny how they they translated that instead of just like coming up with a brand new title altogether. But、uh, yeah, I I commend them for that. Anyways, getting into the episodes themselves. Coming back to the story, Usopp smartly deduces that at one point Perona couldn't do and didn't do any of these crazy things before she disappeared, which means she's not physically there. And Perona describes that her ability kind of works like sort of Doctor Strange's astral projection. One thing that always impressed me about this scene is that Usopp missed his attack, but not only that the exploding star Pachinko didn't even go off. Which at first seems really unlike Usopp to miss a shot and also have faulty gear. I remember thinking for the first time when I was reading this, I don't really have an explanation for what this was or why this was ha- happening, but there had to be something with this. And of course, we had, we do find out that there was something to this. We then get a few filler scenes with Oars and the Hogback fight. These scenes were meant to fill in some minor gaps in the manga, like how Robin and Chopper were subdued by Zoro and Sanji's zombies. However, the main goal of these scenes were to explicitly show how, over time, no matter how strong of a personality and will that the shadows possessed, they eventually succumb to Moria's control and their innate personalities start to sort of melt away a bit. In the manga, we just cut back to the aftermath of these scenes, and it's implied that is what was happening. But the anime opts to spell it out for us. Which does ruin the pacing a bit, but ultimately, I personally feel like this isn't that big of a waste of time, as it does add to the canon material rather than just being a complete detour or complete time waster. But like I mentioned in the differences section, it does still kind of kill the pacing. Getting back to the good stuff, though, Usopp is in some serious trouble as he's been wrapped up in a massive ghost kamikaze wrap. But Usopp is always full of tricks as he unexpectedly. Unexpectedly, and I'll be honest, I was caught up in this whole sequence and could not predict anything. Like I wasn't even really thinking about it. I was just sort of riding along for the story, and he straight tanks the explosion by absorbing it with an impact dial. Now this kind of raises some questions about how exactly the impact dial works for me because it has me thinking: How does it absorb the fiery parts of the explosion? And the way I kind of rationalized it in my head. For this particular situation, is that her ghosts explode with force more so than combustion, so that's how he was able to absorb just the impact and not really sustain any damage. Now, not only that, but just as we thought it was strange that Usopp would straight up miss a shot, he did it on purpose and tricked us all by feigning a Big Bang star and instead used his bird slime star to hold her in place. And watching Usopp's fights is always so damn fun. Seeing him be just straight up sneaky and tricky, and when they all come together, it's so damn satisfying because it it was all set up so perfectly. Not only that, but I love the symbolism that it's Usopp who's doing all this and not Sogeking. Sogeking was just needed to help him calm down and regain his confidence, but it's all Usopp now. And you can say he kind of graduated from the Sugi King、uh, persona and has finally started to believe in himself and his abilities. As this may be a bit of a spoilers for for those hoping to see Sugi King again, but 
we have not actually seen Usopp don the Soge King mask since this point. Now, that may be a disappointment for some people, but I think that's significant that Usopp no longer needs Soge King from here on out. While he's never going to stop being the scaredy cat coward of the crew, there's no longer this sense that he doesn't belong and that he is less than. He knows who he is, and while things are still terrifying for him, going up against these stronger and stronger enemies as the story progresses, Usopp will at least know that he belongs with the Straw Hats, bringing this part of his character arc that started in the Long Ring Long Land, or even, you could even argue the very beginning of the series, almost full circle. As we near the end of the fight, randomly one of the wild zombies, the gentleman Hippopotamus, shows up out of nowhere, uh, which is kind of a weird thing. I feel like, like Oda didn't really set up that well to try and save his master Perona from Usopp. But then, in the best Usopp way possible, he unleashes the full force of that impact dial, one-shotting the hippo. And the way this moment plays out is so amazing. Usopp poses all badass while Perona is shocked to think that maybe Usopp is actually strong and not one of the weaklings of the crew. Then the camera does this quick pan around to show that while, yes, Usopp is badass, He's still Usopp, as as we see that his arms still can't handle the recoil from the impact dial, and his face is absurd with snot running down his nose and his eyes about to roll back into his head from the tremendous amount of pain as he thinks to himself, my arm is going to snap. And I love this about Usopp. Oda never misses an opportunity to subvert our expectations, but also credit to Toei and their animators as this moment is twice as funny in the anime with the way the camera pans and how much more exaggerated they design Usopp's face here, along with Kappe Yamaguchi's always stellar comedic voice acting and timing. Usopp then uses fear and mind games against the ghost princess herself, which is an awesome reversal and uses every dumbass trick in his bag with a cockroach star, then he breaks out an awesome return of the classic Usopp move, the Usopp Hammer, but this time it's received an even bigger upgrade from the uh, Arabasta. It's not a 5-ton hammer now, it's a 10-ton hammer. And at this point, he's all in and really selling it hard. This moment is so fun and awesome. And you know what? These moments and the feeling associated with them of the underdog rising up just wouldn't be possible without how Usopp is built as a weak and scared character. Having Usopp give us a nice change of pace because not everyone can be a badass fighter all the time. Otherwise, it becomes too homogenous and dull. Like, not everyone can be Zoro, Sanji, or even Luffy. But yeah, I, I like the sort of the change of pace with that Usopp and like Chopper and Nami kind of fill, even though they may not be as cool or as strong. But by this point, Perona is full-on having a panic attack as he hits her with the finishing Usopp golden pound, which we all know is fake, and sure enough, it just pops. But Perona passes out from genuine shock and terror. To top it off, the roaches aren't even real either. And I love that Perona met her match as she tried to take on Usopp in a negativity and lying match, yet Another form of what Sanji told him back on NES Lobby comes to fruition here. Usopp has gifts and even some of his perhaps less desirable traits can still be, you know, sources of great strength. And when used in the right context, it's amazing. And I love that. Like, Usopp is the man when you when you really think about it. I, yeah, I love Usopp. And yeah, this victory goes to Usopp full stop.
With that, though, we move on to the next fight. And episode 361 seemingly ends on a cliff, crazy cliffhanger, making it look like Zoro is about to lose his fight with Ryuma with some cryptic dialogue from Frankie and Brooke. But this has to be some sort of obvious misdirection we won't see play out till episode 362. So let's get into that then. So Zoro versus Ryuma, and here we go. We get to see that there is more to this fight just as we thought. As we see what happened just five minutes ago, it looks like Zoro is going to opt to fight Duma with just Nitoryu moves and Itoryu moves. And I love how not only Brooke is surprised by Zoro, but because Frankie has truly yet to see Zoro fully in action, he's just as shocked too. In kind of a rare display, we get to see a bunch of Zoro's Nitoryu moves exclusively, including our first time seeing Rashomo being used on an actual opponent and not just a train. It's also fun seeing the differences in sword styles between Zoro and Yuma, as Yuma, by extension through Brook, tends to use piercing, you know, thrust attacks, while Zoro tends to use a lot of powerful slashing attacks, which also helped us to see how Brook will be different from Zoro when he joins the crew. However, we see that this fight is not destined to be that long, as they're both going after each other, trying to finish each other quickly. The thing is, though, this fight, for as short as it is, and how much it leaves you wanting more, it makes sense from the perspective that Zoro can't fight at full strength without a third store or third sword, and Yuma is trying to end it quickly by trying to break Zoro's swords, while Yuma is probably a little worn out from having battled Brook for so long. Eventually, they both end up on the collapsed roof of the tower, and this moment is awesome, and, and the way this is animated in the anime and drawn in the manga are both amazing for different reasons. The anime gives this moment a lot of momentum and kinetic feel as you can see just how fast they are flying at each other. In the manga, there's this awesome two-page spread freeze frame of the moment where Zoro slashes through Ryuma. They're both amazing for very different reasons, but they convey pretty much the same thing. We also get to see a new Itoryu move from Zoro as a finisher, the Hiryukaien or the Flying Dragon Blaze, where he sets his opponent on fire and up till very recently, this was the only time this move was used. And it was again recently just used 700 or so episodes later. But I guess it's fitting where he ends up using it again. And this is a really cool move I wish Zoro used more often because it's one of the few moves that actually has an extra property to it where after being cut, it sets the target on fire. Like I feel like that would be very useful against a lot of opponents, but he never seems to use it again un until that aforementioned time in in another arc 700 episodes later i suppose it could just be super effective against yuma specifically since he is a zombie after all in any case after that short but awesome finale to their duel in a twist we saw coming zoro was not the loser but the victor of the fight and Oda doesn't really use this sort of storytelling technique very much, and I think this is the first time he's actually used it in a way to intentionally misdirect and subvert our expectations, which was interesting, but ultimately I felt was kind of useless because of how quickly it was resolved, and it didn't really serve much purpose. This felt to me like Oda just kind of experimenting and having fun, like he's been doing this entire arc, just kind of like doing stuff to change things up, and... From, from that perspective, I can kind of respect it because ultimately it didn't necessarily detract from the fight. It was just kind of like, okay, that was interesting. But yeah, Numa himself is a badass to the very end. While he's lit up on fire with these blue flames surrounding him, 
He declares that Zoro is the victor and that he is worthy of the legendary sword Shusui and passes it down to Zoro. I like that even with Moria's influence, Ryuma is still a samurai at heart through and through and has the honor to admit defeat even if it pains him. Zoro understanding this sense of shame as a fellow swordsman offers some words of comfort because I think there is a bit of regret in Ryuma. It wasn't his choice to be revived. He got a proper death in life, and I imagine he was proud of it, but Moria forced him to live another life and taste defeat. But Zoro being the badass, he gladly takes the sword but offers to consider this fight never having taken place, and that it wasn't a genuine fight that Duma should consider a real fight. And so, yeah, I think he kind of saves Duma's face, if you will, with that, which is a nice gesture. But yeah, with that, Zoro gets a new sword and Brook gets his shadow back. And it's also really cool that Zoro now has a black-bladed sword just like Mihawk, putting him one step closer to his goal of reaching and even surpassing Mihawk now that they both have a black sword. I thought that was a really cool sort of nice progression. Also, fun fact about Yuma, now that the fight is over, Ryuma is somewhat based on a character from Oda's one-shot manga, Monsters, which is a compilation of short stories Oda wrote before he, he wrote One Piece, where the actual story of Ryuma kind of lines up with the story in the short story. I don't know why I just worded it like that. Where he slays a dragon, just like the legend in One Piece. And interestingly enough, the silhouette of the dragon that appears when Zoro uses the Hiryukaien is very similar to the one that Ryuma ends up killing in Monsters. Also, the way Oda draws Duma in as a, a live body, not a zombie, in Monsters is essentially like he looks a lot like Zoro, but with black hair as opposed to green hair. And so, yeah, you can kind of see that the Duma was almost an inspiration for Zoro when he started writing One Piece. Now on to episode 363, and we finally are able to get back to the chopper fight despite the slight detour with the fillers. You feel for Chopper and at how angry and betrayed he must have felt in this moment to discover that not only is the famous Dr. Hogback that he admired is not a fallen good man, he was always a rotten man to begin with, apparently. Not only that, but he's just truly evil with no hint of redeeming qualities. Even when he was helping patients, he did it only for his own personal gain and only took patients that could actually pay him large sums of money or give him fame. I know Oda is from Japan, and Japan has a universal healthcare system, so I doubt this is a commentary on that, but this kind of reflects the American healthcare system, and it's, I don't think they have anything related. It's just something I kind of think about when I read, read this portion of it, because, I don't know, because I live in America, and yeah, that, that's a kind of a big thing that always is on my mind. Anyways, with that weird tangent out of, aside out of the way, Chopper does manage to somewhat get through to all three of the zombies when he screams about freedom and how instead of giving them the freedom of eternal life, Hogback is the one actually taking away their freedom by making them slaves. It just shows that despite the control that Moria's powers have over the shadows, just like Roger said in his monologue in Logtown, people will always seek freedom, even in death and in shadow form. A person's soul will always fight against that, and you can kind of see that in these examples of people with particularly strong wills, like with Zoro and Sanji's shadows, as they begin to bicker with each other just like they would with their real counterparts, and their inherent wills will always fight to come out to the surface, despite Moria's influence. 
Robin uses this opportunity to smart outsmart Hogback by having him order the pair to jump off the tower. And I find it funny how they're so competitive still that they're racing to see who can jump to their death first because of the order, <laughs> which is a nice, funny little detail. Now, leaving just Hogback and Sindri, Sindri is unable to move and is crying for reasons she doesn't quite understand because of what Chopper was saying, saying as well. Chopper had really gotten through to her. And I think the really sad thing about this whole thing with Sindri is how this isn't even the real Sindri. We know that the zombies take on the personalities of the Shadow's owners and Sindri's soul slash shadow died when she passed away in her accident that, that we know of. But kind of a slight spoiler for the next episode, this may not entirely be the case as we learn in the very next episode. In any case, this is just some random woman's shadow who Moria and Hogback have taken and enslaved. To Hogback, it doesn't even matter because all he cared about was not Sindri herself and her kind and vibrant personality, but her looks and prestige. That's just really sad to me, and you really feel sad for Sindri and the shadow, and as well the anger at Hogback for how twisted this all is. But yeah, these episodes end with Ors finally becoming controllable and returning to Moria, and we'll have to wait till ne- the next podcast to see the resolution of the Chopper Robin versus Hogback fight, as well as Luffy now having to deal with Moria and Ors at the same time. Anyways, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at SunnyGoPodcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures of my manga collection. I've also been streaming on Twitch, so if you want to come chat or watch me play games, I'd be happy to see you at twitch.tv slash sunny underscore underscore go. As always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. Kind of a shorter spoiler section after this. But if you're not interested in that, hope to see you on the next episode. Bye. Alright, so spoiler section. So I just kind of wanted to briefly go over sort of the callbacks to these moments in the current Wano arc. Now, I'm not going to go too far in depth on any of these because obviously I'll talk more about them when we get to those episodes. But yeah, first off, Shusui and its return to Wano. And I find it interesting because I thought when I originally saw this, I thought Shusui would pretty much stay with Zoro throughout the entire series. But when we get to Wano, we find out that Zoro would actually return the sword to its proper place with, with Wano. But in return, he obviously gets Emma from uh, Hiyori. And so, yeah, I was a little surprised at that too. And we get to learn a little bit more about Yuma and Shusui and and how it was stolen. And yeah, I I just thought that was very interesting how all of that came back full circle. And I guess I I should have expected that when Wano started. And the fact that we would would go, go to Wano and we eventually have to sort of reckon with this but I don't know why it never occurred to me that <laughs> that that would happen. And so, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised at how they handled all of that. And then, obviously, the moment that, that I'm talking about when he used Kiryu Kayen again for the second time was very poetic in that he wouldn't use it until he got to Wano. But the opponent he uses it on were, were just... This moment was a freaking 
epic as he does it on Kaido and Big Mom. Well, I guess he more or less he targets Kaido only, and Big Mom reacts to it, seeing that move and its potential. She actually is the one that kind of saves Kaido's life by telling him to actually avoid it rather than tanking the move like he does with all the other attacks, because this move actually ends up hurting Kaido and kind of grazes his cheek, just showing sort of the progression of this move. Although Kaido doesn't necessarily get set on fire because of this, but. It is a it is an interesting callback to when Zoro does this move in this episode, and then like seven hundred episodes later, he does it again very poetically in Wano. So I just kind of wanted to highlight that as well because the anime version of Hiryukaien in Wano is greatly exaggerated compared to what it's shown here. I mean, I think the animation in Wano has gone a little bit overboard with the auras and sort of the exaggeration and just the flashiness of the moves, but it's still cool nonetheless. But anyways, those are the two things I kind of wanted to mention uh, in the spoiler section for these episodes. So yeah, I thank you for listening and I will see you on the next episode. See ya. See ya.